Good morning. Go ahead and take a seat. <clears throat> well, welcome. My name is Nathan. Welcome to Emmaus Church Community. Welcome if you're joining us online. We're glad that you're here with us. A few things to get started. If you're new with us, we'd love to make some kind of a connection, get contact information so we can uh, inform you of what's happening here and, and begin a relationship where we can share life together. If you're online, please share um, that you, if, you, if you need to um, kind of get connected, let the host know online with that chat bar and we'll get connected with you. There's a couple of things on the tables around the church. There's a good news, what's happening in the church. We covered this a couple of weeks ago. We're still kind of celebrating some of the things that are happening um, and have happened over the last six months here in our community. So grab one of those if you haven't seen it. Um, if you're inviting somebody new to church or you're new with us today, there's a brochure called What is Emmaus? It's a strange word. It's an obscure story, but it's a powerful truth. And here's a brochure that just kind of gives some um, information about what's going on, kind of the why behind the community. So um, what our values are and those kinds of things. <clears throat> hope that's helpful. All right. Well, I'm glad you're here. Our hope is that this is an encouraging morning, that it's an inspiring morning, that we're challenged to bring our hearts before the Lord. I want to encourage you to engage your hearts, choose. There's an old prayer that where the people say lift up, or no, the minister says lift up our hearts. The people respond, we lift them to the Lord. There's this conscious, I'm going to be here now, like Melissa charged us to. I'm going to be here, I'm going to be present here. So may the word of God speak. May we be encouraged and challenged this morning together. When his disciples asked him to teach them to pray... Jesus began with a name of God that was surprising and revolutionary. Jesus said, when you pray, say, Abba. And this, this name that Jesus gives to God within the context of the instructions to prayer suggests an almost shockingly familiar um, familiarity with God, like a close and personal relationship with God. It's what little Jewish kids in the first century called their dads, Abba. It's the word that Jesus used to refer to his adopted father, Joseph. So to us, it might feel a bit casual. It might feel too intimate to call God father or even dad or Abba. Not respectful enough, maybe not formal enough. But the fact that Jesus calls God Abba, it's revolutionary. It's remarkable. And listen, the fact that he then turns to his disciples and to you and me and invites us to call God Father, that's even more remarkable. There's a theologian that I read through college and grad school named N.T. Wright. A brilliant guy, speaks with a British accent, seems very formal in every way. N.T. Wright, that's old school. Old theologians just went by the initials, right? So he's still pulling it off, N.T. Wright. And then a couple of years ago, I got to hear him speak at William Jessup University. And as I'm listening to the circle around, because I'm kind of like eavesdropping on all the conversations, I realize this, his friends call him Tom. Isn't that interesting? Doesn't he feel so much more approachable knowing that his friends call him Tom? So imagine how how remarkable it would be for me. I think it's remarkable that N.T. Wright, that somebody walks up to N.T. Wright and calls him Tom. How much more remarkable would it feel if I got to meet him and shook my hand and said, hey, I'm Nathan, and he said, call me Tom, right? That would be like an, an, an invitation into a whole new level of, of relationship. And, and that's what's happening here. Jesus changes the game by inviting his disciples to address God in prayer, not as almighty, 
not as the Holy One, right? But inviting us to address God in prayer as Father, as Abba even, which is an intimate, personalized. What an amazing invitation. You and I are welcomed into a relationship with our Creator that is so close, that is so comforting, that is so full of trust, it's like a healthy parent-child relationship. That's the best metaphor for a relationship with God, a healthy parent-child relationship. I love this idea. There's something truly revolutionary about relating to God as father, as dad even, as Abba. And I'm drawn in by this idea that I could have a relationship with my creator that is so personal that I could approach him like a child approaches his dad. But then, friends, as soon as I start feeling like maybe that's a little too informal, Maybe that's a little too cozy. Maybe that's a little too, you know, um, casual. As soon as I start feeling like that, then Jesus finishes his sentence, which I only began last week, which with, uh, he begins, uh, our Father in heaven, and then he finishes the sentence, hallowed be thy name, which means your name is sacred and holy. So that's what we're talking about this morning. He invites us to call him dad, But by the end of the sentence, you have this, hallowed be thy name. In other words, Jesus says, when you pray, pray, you are my dad, and you're glorious. You're holy. You want to come up here for a sec, bud? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It's like Jesus is saying, you are close enough to be this dad, and yet you are majestic. You are other. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It's like, you're my dad. I can approach you anytime I want. And you're like a mountain. You're you're majestic. You're huge. You're other. It's like you're the dad that will play catch in the backyard, right? And you're also the God who angels in heaven prostrate themselves before you and forever declare holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Nice catch, kid who was and is and is to come, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Good job. Thanks, bud. Thanks, buddy. It's an invitation into a relationship with the God of the universe that is so full of nurture and protection that it fills me with confidence. It fills me with confidence. That is the ultimate upshot or ramification, I think, of being invited into this relationship that Jesus makes available through the first line of this prayer. It's a relationship with the divine that is characterized by confidence. I belong here because that's my dad. And at the same time, this deep and powerful reverence. So it fills me with confidence, and it also fills me with awe and and reverence at the same time. 
we think about relationships usually as either or. It's formal or it's informal. It's casual or it's official. And, and we're invited in this relationship that is remarkably intimate and remarkably reverent at the same time. It's like Jesus says, when you pray, pray, your name is Dad, and that is a glorious name. That is a holy name. That is a sacred name. You invite us to be your children, and you are worthy of unceasing praise. All right, so here's what we're going to do in the next few minutes. I want to ask just a couple of questions. First question, what does it mean to be hallowed? Second question, is this a statement or is this a question? In other words, is God already hallowed or are we asking him to be hallowed? And third question, what are some of the ramifications of praying this prayer? What are some of the ramifications of living this prayer? All right, that's where we're headed. You guys ready to rock? First question, what does it mean to be hallowed? A big reason that this, that this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, fails to land as it should is because of this unfortunate word, hallowed. Nobody says this word anymore. Have you noticed? Other than the Lord's Prayer, where do you see the word hallowed? Where, do, where, do you, where does it remind you of? Halloween, that's it, right? That's about the only other kind of cultural connotation that we have with this, with this word. Um, so let's talk about Bible translation for a minute, okay? Because this is always fun. Let's talk about Bible translation. The New Testament was originally written in what language? Greek. is written in Greek. The Greek word translated hallowed is the word hagiazo, which means to sanctify, to make holy, to be sacred. In the year 1526, there was a priest named William Tyndale, and he finished the very first English translation of the New Testament from the Greek. A thousand years earlier, the Bible had been translated into Latin. A thousand years earlier... So if you knew the Bible, you heard it in Latin. And then along comes William Tyndale, 16th century, 1526. Not a whole lot of people in England are speaking Latin at this point. So he translates the Bible into English for the first time. He translated Hagiazo in the Lord's Prayer as hallowed be which apparently was a good choice in 1526, okay? Probably a lot of English speakers were saying things like that in 1526. The word hagiazo shows up 29 times in the New Testament, this Greek word hagiazo, 29 times. 26 of the 29, it's translated to sanctify, to set apart. Two times out of 29, both of the occurrences in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew's version and Luke's version, it's translated by Tyndall, hallowed be. And then one time it's translated holy. So I don't know why William Tyndale chooses hallowed be for just two out of 29 occurrences of the same word in the New Testament. I'm guessing it has something to do with the use of the word in the context of prayer. Uh, but he, he must have had a reason. He was very brilliant and he was a great linguist. My, my point is this, the phrase hallowed be thy name stuck and it's still sticking. 500 years later. Um, William Tyndale is remembered for a few things. One, he's remembered because he was the first to translate the Bible into English, and he translated the original languages not into the kind of English that the academics were writing and lecturing in. He translated the, la the, the original languages into the common English of the day, the everyday language of the normal, everyday person. Tyndale would print 
New Testament uh, books on these, in these little, little pamphlets, little booklets that you could put in your pocket because he wanted the, the word of God to end up in people's lives and end up in people's homes. He's also remembered because translating the sacred text into the common vernacular of the people, making the Bible accessible in homes, was not just seen as a major threat to the established state church, but it was seen as, as heresy. It was seen as uh, being too casual and informal with the sacred text. And so because it was seen as disrespectful, it put his life in danger. He fled England, but he was ultimately executed for heresy under the reign of King Henry VIII, who had a thing for execution. Uh, 1536. The historic irony is that in 1611, like 65 years after William Tyndale published the New Testament, in these secret prints, right, under cloak of darkness, King James authorized an English translation of the Bible, which plagiarized Tyndale's work. 90% of the King James Bible, have you heard of it? 90% of the King James Bible is a direct copy of Tyndale's work for which he was executed. He wasn't given any credit for it for hundreds of years later. But third thing about Tyndale, what he is given credit for and what he's actually celebrated for is his ability to translate ancient languages into beautiful and poetic prose. Tyndale's translation is not considered the most accurate translation, but he, is, he created some famously beautiful and memorable kind of roll-off-the-tongue phrases. It was the era of Shakespeare adoration, so there was great value in being able to turn a phrase in a way that was beautiful and memorable. Remember, most people don't even have a Bible in their homes. The only place you can encounter this is at church. Here's some of the phrases that Tyndale translated. Um, or the, the, the words he used to translate the Greek, the salt of the earth. Imagine you've never heard that before. You've never heard the salt of the earth. Because if, if it was ever read in church, it was read in Latin. If you translate that literally, it would be something like salt of soil, which just doesn't really carry the same sort of beauty, right? The salt of the earth is, he writes that phrase for the first time, let there be light, that's a Tyndale phrase. The spirit is willing. That's a total puzzle on how to translate that phrase. The spirit is willing. We just, it's become part of our whole culture. From the parable of the prodigal son, Tyndale has it, thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. From the Christmas story, uh, there were shepherds abiding in the field by night. We just, we think of this as though Jesus, as though this is right out of the Gospel of Luke. Because it is right out of the Gospel of Luke. But imagine, you've never even heard this in your own language before. Um, this is essentially what the Bible says. But just think about it. He is rendering scripture into the language of a whole culture for the very first time. This is a whole new language. The Bible's never been in English before. And so for the first time, these truths are being articulated in, in English. you got to figure out, if this is your job, how do I put this, this truth, which has only ever been expressed through a language that almost nobody even speaks anymore, how do I put this truth into the common language of the people? And in order to do so, he literally invented words. Like he invented the word scapegoat. Isn't that interesting? 
He invented that word. Okay, so when you hear the word of God for the first time in your language, imagine that. It's hard for us to imagine unless we're second, unless English is our second language or, or something. Um, imagine hearing the word of God spoken in the language that your parents spoke. And how familiar, how instantly accessible the whole Bible would suddenly feel. And you would remember it. And you would get attached to it. And many of the phrases, even though they were written in a way that made sense 500 years ago, like hallowed be thy name, they haven't changed in most translations for that very reason. People have gotten attached to that phrase. It's been used in public worship for 500 years. You don't mess with the Lord's Prayer, right? It's seen as, as sacrilege now, which is sort of ironic. Modern Bible translations, they put a whole lot more emphasis on accuracy than they do on sort of some Shakespearean eloquence. But they, they also know that the Bible has to be readable. And a literal translation doesn't always read well. So there are certain phrases that have become so meaningful over centuries of worship that they've continued to be used, even though they're a bit weird, like hallowed be thy name. A more understandable translation might be sanctify your name. Our Father in heaven, sanctify your name. Or maybe even more understandable, our Father in heaven, glorify your name. Eugene Peterson has a paraphrase. He frees himself completely from the responsibility of actual translation and just tries to get to the heartbeat of it. It's, that's why it's not a translation. It's a paraphrase. He puts it like this. Our Father in heaven, reveal who you are. All right, which brings us to the second question. Is this a statement or is this a question? Do you ever ask this uh, of your teenager? Do you ever say, so are you telling me or are you asking me, right? Is this a statement or is this a question? In other words, is God already hallowed or are we asking him to be hallowed? Is God already holy or are we somehow asking him to make himself holy? Historically, this phrase is seen as the first of seven petitions. We could outline the Lord's Prayer by saying it's an address, our Father, seven petitions, seven requests, and then a doxology at the end. This is seen as the first question, the first request. And so the very first thing Jesus teaches his disciples and us to say to the Lord is to, is to ask God, be hallowed, be glorified, which is not to say that God isn't holy until we make him holy or declare him holy. It's not to say that we're asking God to be something that he isn't already. God is already holy. Um, he's holy in nature. So Jesus is not teaching his disciples or his followers to pray that God would be something that he isn't already. Okay, so what's the point of the question then? Jesus is teaching his followers to um, pray that God would reveal to them who he really is. That he would reveal to them who he really is. We pray, hallowed be thy name, not that we wish that God would be made more holy, but that we wish that our, or we're asking that our awareness of his holiness would increase. The prayer to hallow God's name corresponds with what Jesus teaches the previous chapter. We're taking the Lord's Prayer out of Matthew 6. The previous chapter in Matthew 5, Jesus says this, Let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. It, it's the same idea. So we're saying glorify your name is, is, the first, is the first thing we pray. It's the first question we ask God. Glorify your name. Hallowed means glorified. In effect, he is saying enable us 
to live in such a way that other people will see our lives and they'll honor you. They'll glorify you. They'll be like, there's no way that makes sense unless there's some other bigger thing involved, right? There's no way that this could, could happen except, and, and then the view gets taken, the attention gets pulled from the person to the person's God. By praying, hallowed be thy name, we're asking God to use our lives to glorify him. Can you believe that? Can you believe that? This is what Jesus is asking us to do. God has no problem glorifying himself. In fact, it's a huge risk to put his glory kind of on the table and, and, and ask his creation, which frankly doesn't have a great track record, to glorify him. But this is what he does. This is the, this is the in, invitation that is extended to all who follow Jesus. God wants to glorify God's self through you and me. And that's what we're asked to pray. That is when, when we ask God, ask Jesus, how should we pray? This is the very first thing that he says. Use, pray this, pray, use my life to show others what is true and good. That's essentially the prayer. Help me to recognize who you are. You're my dad. You're like a majestic mountain. Now, I'm going to shine a truth on that. I'm going to shine light on that. Help me to, to pull other people's attention upward towards you. Calling attention to the truth doesn't make it true. It's already true. It just reveals the truth. Helps us recognize it, and hopefully it helps other people recognize it. What's easy to miss, friends, in the awkwardness of the phrase, hallowed be thy name, but is clearly implied by virtue of the fact that Jesus is teaching this as a prayer, is that we are asking our Father to enable us to see him as he is and then to help other people see him as he is. The truth revealed to John, Jesus' disciple, at the end of the Bible in his revelation is that God is being worshipped and glorified in heaven. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's what the angels and all these other created beings never stop praying. So this is what is true according to the Bible. This is truth. Jesus is teaching us to ask God to enable us to see that truth, to shine light on that truth, to point others to that truth, to celebrate that truth, to glorify the truth. What is the truth? It is that the almighty creator of the universe has invited us to be his kids. That's the truth. That, that God invites us to see him as our father. Okay, so that, that should be something that we're like, Melissa, did you, did you know this? Right? Are, are you seeing this? The creator of the universe wants to be in a relationship with me that is probably best um, uh, compared to a relationship between a dad and his kid. Are you seeing this? Like, this is the truth. Like, helping other people to recognize it. All right. Lastly, what are the ramifications of praying this prayer? What are, as an Orthodox priest put it, the pungent implications of praying, hallowed be thy name. Isn't that a great phrase? The pungent, uh, an orthodox person would say that. It's all about smells. The pungent implication of praying this prayer. If Jesus had not just, um, if Jesus is not just teaching us a way to pray, but Jesus is actually in the prayer teaching us a way to live, then what is the way of life that we're learning 
when we pray the Lord's Prayer? What is the way of life that the Lord's Prayer calls us into? Well, that's a massive question. Let me just give you three examples, and I'll label them as beginning, middle, and end. Okay? Quickly, the Lord's Prayer, living the Lord's Prayer, is a way of life that just begins with God. Fundamentally, it starts with God. Before I ask for what I think I need, I'm acknowledging God. I'm acknowledging God. I'm recognizing God for who God is. He is my Father, and He is holy. I'm invited into an intimate and and familiar and approachable relationship with Him, and He is absolutely holy. At the same time, living the prayer positions me to live in grateful surrender to God right out of the gate. First thing in the morning, I'm telling you, first thing in the morning, if I can get my head and my heart to connect around the words, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, that's a great way to start because I'm beginning to live my day as I was created to live in relationship with God, who is my Father and is the creator of the world. Our Father in heaven, reveal who you are. It's a way of life that starts with God. I'm answering the question, what are the implications? What are the pungent implications? What are the ramifications of living this prayer? First, you begin with God. You begin the discussion of the tragedy with God. You begin the financial puzzle with God. You begin the new romantic interest with God. You begin with God. This is what it teaches. Secondly, not only is this way of life a way of life that begins with recognizing God, but living this prayer forms me into a way of life that is characterized by worshiping God in all things. Everything in the middle, everything in the middle, everything after the beginning and before the end needs to be surrendered and viewed as worship. Every interaction, every decision, every mundane activity, every business deal, every encouraging act, parenting, paying bills, it can all be done for the glory of God. This is the invitation. This isn't some like high church prayer. This is a way of life prayer. So everything in the middle, living the Lord's prayer shapes me into a person that worships God, adores God, praises God, glorifies God in all things. In a really healthy, holistic, natural, and, in, and um, sincere way. I'm not talking about, you know, the, the race car driver who just acknowledges the man upstairs. That kind of acknowledgement. I'm not talking about kind of tipping my hat to the big guy who is really looking out for me today you know, at the end of the football game. I'm talking about adoring God. I'm talking about glorifying God. I'm talking about asking God in the middle of the crisis, reveal who you are. I'm shining a light on God. I'm helping others to recognize God in the midst of this. I'm saying, are you seeing this? I'm glorifying something that deserves to be glorified. Do you know how amazing this God is? Are you seeing this? If everything in the middle... Everything in the middle of life is not glorifying God. It's glorifying me. That's the only other option. Okay. And that's, the, that's like the essence of being a follower of Jesus. My life belongs to him. This is not about personal promotion. This is about glorifying God. I got two choices. 
I enter the business deal in a way that enables me ultimately to walk out having honored God or having honored myself and glorified myself and just fill in the blank. It doesn't mean you're constantly preaching. the. It, it means that everything you do, you do as unto the Lord, right? Everything in the middle is done as worship. And then finally, living the Lord's Prayer clarifies the ultimate purpose or the ultimate end. We talked about the beginning, the middle, and now the end. Living the Lord's Prayer forms everything, from my language to my uh, finances to my personal habits in a way that respects God and honors the name of God. That is the end game, I want to say. That's the end game. I don't want to say or do anything that tears down or um, tarnishes the reputation of my father. I don't want to do anything that compromises the way people view Jesus Christ. In a season like this one, friends, where the political and social opinions are being shouted, not conversed over, flags are being waved, fingers are being pointed, it's kind of a like it or not in your face, you deal with it kind of statements being made all day long in all kinds of contexts. Living the Lord's Prayer, living hallowed be thy name, it makes me not want to say anything that's going to poorly or it's going to reflect poorly on my father. That's the end game. All of this other stuff matters too, but I'm trying to remember what's the end game? What's the end? The end game is I want to honor God. At the end of the day, I want to have honored God. You say, well, it's about my right to express my views. Well, is it? Is that really what it's about? Or is it about your responsibility to represent your Father in heaven? The Lord's Prayer invites us into a way of life, friends that has a greater ultimate purpose. And that ultimate purpose is to glorify his name. Okay? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Let's pray. With these Familiar words, Lord, these old phrases, would they be infused with new life for us instead of a quick introduction into a common prayer, may this be a way of living for us. May this guide and shape what we do and the way we do it. May your name be glorified through us. Amen. Amen.